You're listening to The World Is Just A Book Away podcast. I'm James Owens, founder and CEO of The World Is Just A Book Away, a nonprofit organization on a mission to promote literacy and education by developing libraries and programs in disadvantaged communities around the world. For more information about The World Is Just A Book Away, please visit www.wejaba.org. That's W-I-J-A-B-A dot org. My guest today on the World is Just a Book Away podcast is Catherine Quinlan, Dean of Libraries at the University of Southern California and the publisher of my book, The World is Just a Book Away, through USC Libraries Press. A leader in the world of library sciences, Dean Quinlan oversees 23 libraries and all associated staff, faculty, and student assistants at USC. Currently in her third term as Dean of USC Libraries, Catherine discusses the importance of books and reading, the dynamic between electronic books and print, and the future of libraries in general. In our conversation, Dean Quinlan and I also discuss the role books and reading have played in her life and the crucial role libraries play in an era of information overload. I'm excited today to welcome Catherine Quinlan, Dean of USC Libraries, to our podcast at The World is Just a Book Away. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks, James. Nice to nice to reconnect with you. I want to share with our listeners how we met in our initial connection, which is which is very powerful and, and very meaningful for my life and for the world is just a book away. Catherine and I originally met through one of the the Wejaba's uh, ambassadors, and she spoke at our first uh, gala event at USC, and we began talking about my book, The World is Just a Book Away, and Catherine said, why don't you publish it with us, USC Libraries, and I don't think you knew what you were getting into, did you? I don't think you knew either. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it was a logistically... (laughs) A very complicated book, and I I really want to thank you and honoring you for and honor you for seeing the potential in the book and um, the beautiful preface you wrote and all the resources and team with Hugh Tyson and the whole team uh, dedicated to creating this book. The world is just a book away. Well, it was a pleasure and a lot of fun for us to do it with you. Oh, thank you. And uh, just to start for uh, out of interest. For me and and perhaps for hopefully for our listeners also, what attracted you to the idea of the book, The World is Just a Book Away? Why why did you decide to publish it? Well, there were so many things. I mean, first and foremost in my mind was really your energy around the book and what it meant to you and what it meant to Wajaba. I mean, that really struck me even before I knew who was involved um, and who you had um, as contributors to the book. So, I mean, you did a great job explaining the importance of this kind of book and the audience it would really um, develop in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't think we ever sort of saw a prescribed audience, but I think we've both been surprised by the variety of people who've really been engaged by it. So I think it's all your fault, James. You were (laughs) excited. You got me excited. And, you know, look what happened. We published a book. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, thank you. And it's uh, and I, I can share with our listeners that it is really a unique experience to publish a book with a group of librarians. <laughs> I was not involved. Be- because truly, I, every point, every uh, point of <laughs> punctuation was was proofed in this book in a way that I don't I think rarely has been done. So it, it, it has been an amazing experience, as you said, and amazing publicity uh, around the world and from from people. I, I mean, as you know, the, the the photograph we received back from Jane Goodall holding the book and from President Gorbachev holding the book is it's just been been really incredible. Let's transition into what brings someone, and I, I happen to know from our personal conversation that you're a very accomplished cellist, and mm-hmm. you have a, you have an undergraduate degree in music, uh, a master's in lab, library science, and a and an MBA. What drew you into this realm, this field of being a librarian? Well, you and your readers may, our listeners may be um, disappointed that you know that it was not something that I set out to do. Um, I always enjoyed learning, and um, I was going to law school uh, when uh, the 10th day of the course, the professor asked a question, and every law law school looks down at the desk and prays, don't ask me, don't ask me. And he said, what does the freak in the back row think? And I looked around, and there was the wall. <laughs> and I said, you mean me? And he said, oh, yes. And, you know, I was a musician for many years. I had big hair. I had knee socks on. I had this little smock dress. Everybody else had their briefcase and their tweed jacket. And I just decided that I didn't want to be in a program that treated people that way. Mm. So I got on my high horse and rode out of class and went to the registrar's office to withdraw and discovered that I was too late to get my money back. And like everybody in graduate school, I was a poor, struggling student, and I needed to either go to school or get my money back. And the registrar very kindly said, you know, well, dear, um, you know, there must be a program for which you're qualified. And sure enough, there was a program called a Master of Library Science, and I had all the requirements, and they had room, and that's how I became a librarian. Well, that's that's amazing. And did uh, just out of curiosity, did the professor actually use the word? What did you say? Freak? Is that the word you used? Yes. Yep. Uh, I I can't imagine using that in my class nowadays. Hopefully, things have changed. (laughs) This was back in the early 80s where there was a little more um, freedom with language and less care about how people might react to language. And I make great strides in that direction. That's for sure. Well, thankfully. And and to, uh-huh. and to clarify for the listeners what it means to be the dean of libraries at a major research institution like USC, one of the most prestigious universities in the world, as my understanding goes, you actually are have oversight over 23 libraries, more than 200 staff and faculty, and over 100 student uh, assistants per year. Is that correct? Yes. Um, in fact, I first became a dean in my 30s, and I was working in St. John's, Newfoundland at the time, running a smaller library, and my neighbor wanted to know why I would leave Newfoundland to go and work on the mainland, as he said. And so I explained the job to him, and he looked at me and said, oh, I understand. You're going to be the mayor, uh, because the size of that library system I was going to manage was larger than the town he grew up in in Newfoundland. Wow. And I have to say that some days how I feel. You know, I... I manage a lot of different entities. I over, 
um, see the budget. Um, I try to ensure that everything we do is in direct support of our students and our research and learning enterprise. And there's a lot of moving parts. And I think that's one of the things I most enjoy about my job is how diverse it is and how complex it can be. And you're now in your third, uh, your, your third appointment, right? Since 2007, your third term. Yes. What, uh, can you take us back, uh, take us back a little while to, to childhood and, and give us a feel for what role or what emotion there was around books in your life and in your family? Well, my parents were immigrants to Canada. My mother was British and my father was Polish. And um, they met in England, uh, got married very, in fact, eloped very soon after meeting. And my mother's mother was xenophobic and could not believe that her daughter had married a non-British citizen. So my parents, um, they were also concerned about World War III starting and felt that Europe was not a very safe place to be. So they decided to emigrate. And they tossed a coin, and it was either going to be Australia or Canada, and we ended up in Canada. And one thing that was always very important to both of my parents was education. And my father was a research physicist, um, completed his Ph.D. after he was married and had children. Um, My mother did not go to university until after she'd had all her children in her mid-40s and then decided she was going to go to university. So we really were brought up in a culture of learning, of investigation, of just trying new things. Um, My father liked to challenge us at the dining room table with sort of puns and long division, multiplication, things that kind of stretched your mind. So we all started to learn to read quite early on. Um, I learned to read by the time I was three. And for me, that just opened up a whole world of discovery, you know, things that you had never experienced, things you'd never imagined. And I read all the usual children's books. And I distinctly remember when I was six or seven, um, my mother presented me with my first grown-up book which was a book that she had um, won as an award when she was in, um, I think, fourth form in British school. And it was a beautiful miniature copy of Jane Eyre, which was printed on this very thin onion paper and had these beautiful line drawings. And I remember being so captivated, not just by the story, but by the whole book itself. And I just was overwhelmed with the story with the physical item and with how those two things kind of came together to really create such a full experience of reading for me. Is that the book that really stands out the most from your youth? I see that as a book where I sort of graduated from reading, you know, the usual children's stories and, you know, the Enid Blyton stories and adventure stories and Nancy Drew and, you know, Anne of Green Gables. To me, that was sort of my first adult book. So I think it stands out for me in that respect. I, ha- I have it as one of the classics on my, my son's shelf. I give him a classic each year at his birthday. And I haven't, I haven't reread it since I was in high school. And I feel, I feel called to reread it. Have you ever gone back and reread it? Oh, yes. In fact, I still have the very um, book that... I just talked about uh, when my mother died, uh, everybody in the family said, well, this book means a lot to you. You know, that's yours. And I do go back and read it. And I think the other reason it 
it struck me so forcibly was Jane Eyre's experience was so different from mine. Mm. You know, she was an orphan, you know, growing up in an orphanage where, you know, they were not nice to her. She couldn't have you know, clothes she wanted. She lived with relatives who didn't really like her. And I think I was just so naive at that point that I never thought that anybody lived in anything other than a happy family. So it really broadened my view of what a family means and it certainly broadened my appreciation of my family and how close we all were. How many, how many, out of curiosity, how many siblings do you have? Five. That's, that's a lot of kids. We were a small family. Everybody felt sorry for us on the block because everybody else had 12 children or more. My mother wanted 22 children so she could have her own symphony orchestra. Okay. <laughs> and because she had so few, we all learned multiple instruments. <laughs> you're, all, you're all musicians? We all play. Um, ah. There's only really two of us who are, do music for a living. I've got a sister who plays at the Hague Orchestra in um, Amsterdam, and I have a sister who teaches music for a living. That's, that's incredible. And the rest of us went off to other things. And in being in this other thing, this world of libraries, I'm I'm curious, and as you know, and, and thank you also, I didn't mention that you're on the advisory board of We Job Out of the World is Just a Book Away. And oh, and that you also gave me the way to explain how to pronounce We Java to people in your speech as a wee little Jabba the Hut, which <laughs> Which I, <laughs> which I credit you with, and I use all the time since then. Uh, I'm glad I could be helpful. <laughs> you're very helpful. Uh, what have you seen since you began your studies and your career? What changes have you seen in the use of libraries, and what do you see as the future of libraries? It's always interesting to me when people say, "Oh, technology must have changed libraries." And I say, well, go back to, you know, the Gutenberg Bible when it was first printed. I mean, printing a book was a huge technological step forward for civilization. And libraries really have always, in my mind, been at the forefront of technology. We were the first, you know, group to use technology um, when we um, put our, on, our catalogs online. We went from our card catalog to something that you could research through your computer or your phone. And I just see technology helping us do our jobs better and better. I don't think our job has changed over the you know, millennia that libraries have existed. We're here to help people find the information they need, evaluate it critically, and become a critical consumer of information in a way that supports their lifelong learning enterprise. And whether you do that with a piece of vellum or you do it with a book or you do it with an e-book, our job really is the same, just the medium changes. Have you have you noticed uh, I was very interested recently I asked a class of my undergrads which of them preferred reading electronically versus reading the physical copy of the book and I was surprised that the vast majority of my undergraduate students preferred the physical copy of the book and, and there's, actually, there's actually some great research that supports that I think most people's perception is that the physical book is dying out and that younger people want to read electronically. What is your experience with that? That's a bunch of baloney, if you don't mind my saying so. Um, I've discovered not just in running the libraries at USC, but just generally that people enjoy print. 
You know, if you're trying to read a textbook online and you want to reference something, I mean, sure, you can highlight and you can mark, but flipping back and forth on an ebook is still much more difficult than flipping back and forth on a print book. There's also been some interesting studies done by um, in Norway that says there's just something about the retention of information when you read a print book versus when you read an ebook, that the information stays with you longer. And she ascribes that in part to the physical act of seeing the pages turn, to having that tactile feeling, and seeing the book pass through, you know, the pages on your left get higher than the pages on your right. And she, as this researcher, believes that that has something to do with your retention of the information that you're learning from the book as opposed to flipping through. And I can certainly say from my personal experience, that works for me, but that may be an age thing as much as it is a medium thing. But I can read something, I can read an e-book, and I can read a physical book, and I'll much more clearly remember what I learned from the physical book than the e-book. That's very interesting. I wasn't I wasn't aware of that research. I I find it as my personal experience that I that I very much like holding a book and I find it more relaxing. But I I wasn't aware of the research you just uh, you just cited. Yeah. And also, you know, trying to sleep and a lot of people sort of read themselves to sleep. You know, if you're trying to fall asleep with that bright light from your e-reader shining in your face, it disrupts your health, your whole melatonin output and can really stop you from sleeping as opposed to helping you sleep when you read a book, physical book. Yeah, good good point. What do, have you noticed in terms of students checking out books over the years at, at USC? Is it do, do the numbers stay consistent? Have they gone down? Have they gone up since since you've uh, taken charge of the libraries? It's really fluctuated, and it depends to some extent on the kind of resources that the faculty encourage their students to use. So, you know, about five years ago, we were seeing a decline in our physical circulation, and but we saw an increase in the number of e-books that people were checking out. And now we're seeing the opposite of that. We're seeing an increase in circulation of physical items and a leveling off of people using electronic materials. And any idea where that comes from? I think it comes from the individual themselves as much as it comes from what faculty recommend, as much as it comes from, you know, there's sort of a culture that's going back to past media. You know, there's a real resurgence in long playing records as opposed to, you know, streaming music. There's a resurgence of sort of a more formal way of dress with some of our students than there has been in the past. So it's a little bit of what's old is new again. Um, but I also interesting to me when I speak with our students, how differently they feel about reading from a book versus reading from an, a reader. They feel that there's more seriousness about reading from this huge book than there is from reading what may be a huge book that's been digitized, but just looks like you know, screens that, are, that flash by as you flick your finger. So do you, it's, it sounds like you see it as an and rather than an either or. Oh, very much so. I mean, the other issue with digitization is it's not a permanent medium in any way, shape, or form. So anything that we digitize in the library, you know, we digitize for ease of access. We don't digitize for permanence. Because if you took a picture on your phone five years ago and you tried to find it, you'd probably find that there are blank spots in that picture because there's a magnetic charge that holds the bits to the medium. The magnetic charge starts to lessen over time, and you start to lose content. The bits start to flip. And we see this 
very clearly with the whole Shoah Foundation, all the uh, video testimonies they have, they have to recopy them every three years because the medium starts to degrade. So when people ask me why I still have books and why I don't just digitize everything, my response is I'd have to keep digitizing it every couple of years because the medium is not a permanent one. I had no idea that that was the case. Yep, it's quite, it's quite an undertaking. In fact, my first visit with our trustees, they asked me why I just didn't, didn't digitize the whole library and free up all that space and asked me to find out how much it would cost. So I dutifully went away and found out how much it would cost and reported back that it would cost a couple of billion dollars and we'd have to do it every three years. And that stopped that conversation about digitizing <laughs> at the library. It's it's amazing how quickly something involving money shifts conversations. <laughs> and there's also the whole copyright issue, too. I mean, Google saw this when they were trying to do the Google Book Project, and they ran into severe resistance from a number of authors who said, you know, I make my livelihood by selling copies of my book. If you're going to go out and digitize my book and put it up on Google, like, where's my source of income coming so there are a lot of intellectual property issues as well around digitization, especially for materials that are still under copyright. Mm. And Catherine, you mentioned the Shoah Foundation. Can you uh, can you explain to our listeners what your connection to the well, what Shoah Foundation's connection to U.S. is, and then what your connection to the foundation is sure. to the institute? Yeah, the Shoah Foundation um, was developed by Steven Spielberg. Um, in response to what he experienced in making the movie Schindler's List. And he really got concerned that all the stories of the Holocaust survivors were going to disappear as these people passed away. And so he decided that he was going to make a huge effort to collect video testimonies of all the survivors he could find and all who were willing to contribute. And he ended up with tens of thousands of testimonies. And he realized as this project grew that it really needed to have a home at an institution, not a home in his foundation or just a personal interest. He really wanted this to thrive and to, to develop. So 15, 20 years ago, I can't remember really when, I wasn't here, he decided to donate um, the collection to USC. And it ended up being part of the college, uh, but we work very closely with them because a lot of technology they use to preserve their content is techno technology we're very interested in using to provide access to our content. So Sam Gustman, who is the CIO for the Shoah Foundation, is also my associate dean for um, tech information technology. So we do, we do a lot of sharing that way. Stephen Smith, who is the director of the Shoah Foundation, um, we work very closely together around a number of initiatives. In fact, they've just relocated in the Levy Library. They used to be on the um, ground floor. They're now on the fourth floor. And it's a much better showcase for what they do. So while they're not organizationally tied to the library in any way, we do work very closely together. Well, and, and thank you for doing that that work, which is very powerful. And as I said, I, I w I'm very surprised to hear that it requires the re-recording or digitization every three years. It's quite an undertaking. It really is. And if you ever would like to see the process that they've developed, it's really impressive. They've got sort of tapes that are being perpetually copied and recopied. There's a whole little uh, enterprise they've got located over in the Carroll Little building where IT services are located. I know Sam would be happy to give you a tour if you're ever interested. Uh, I will definitely. Yeah, I will take I will definitely take you up on that. And that that's something that fascinates me. And I, our next door neighbor in the Berkshires in Massachusetts is one of the 
people who was interviewed, so I know her tape is there somewhere. Oh, wow. Uh, what importance, going back to books and reading, you've dedicated your life to this. I'm dedicating my life to this, really, books, reading, learning. Well, why does it matter? What, what's the importance of books and reading when we can Google whatever topic we want? Well, as someone famous said, and his name escapes me at the moment, I mean, Google can find you 100,000 answers. A librarian can help you find the right one. Mm. And to me, that's the difference from going out and Googling information versus coming to your library and talking to someone who has consciously curated a collection for accuracy, for diversity of viewpoints, and helps you learn how to be a consumer of that information in a critical way. I think that, you know, while Google will help you, you know, increase your vocabulary, I think that books have a more long-standing effect on that in that they encourage you to investigate more. I mean, I know that you Google something, you can go down this rabbit hole of just sort of clicking on link after link after link, but you're never sure what the validity of those links is going to be, you know, is it just somebody's pet project that they've cooked up a lot of stuff or is it actually, you know, information that has been fact-checked? The issue with Google or any kind of website is you don't know, really know who's developed it. I think I've told you this story, James. I had a student come to see me a number of years ago to inform me quite excitedly that he discovered smoking wasn't that bad for you. I kind of looked at him and said, well, show me. I'd be interested. So he flipped over to his laptop and showed me this wonderful website. It's a website developed by Philip Morris. And, you know, it said, well, you know, the, the jury's still out that, you know, we shouldn't smoke too much. But it's not saying that smoking is completely bad. And I said to the student, do you know who Philip Morris is? He goes, no, but he's got a killer website. <laughs> Philip Morris makes cigarettes. And he looked at me kind of dumbfounded that what he'd found online was not the truth. And that, if anything, worries, worries me about the proliferation of, I'm not even sure I'd call it information, uh, viewpoints and opinion, is that I really see our students struggling with figuring out what to believe and what not to believe. And I really think that's why the job of a librarian is always going to be important and is always going to be there. And I wish we could recruit more people into the field of librarianship. They think they have to have a bun and wear sneakers, and I can tell you that's not true. Some of the coolest people on my staff are librarians, and I wish that more people would see that as a profession. And I, I can certainly vouch for that because I had the opportunity to work with them for for a number of years. And I, I think this is an amazing point you raised that <clears throat> that I can reflect on myself, my experience with undergraduate students, my experience with my son, who's... 14 and at a very academically rigorous high school, the proliferation of social media and people sharing their opinions and then trying to differentiate what is fact from what is just someone's whim is, is very, uh, I can see that that's very um, taxing for that generation in particular. Mm, very much so. And when you see, you know, people go to Wikipedia a lot, but the content of Wikipedia changes almost from day to day depending upon the topic. You know, people get in and change things because they can, and they may not always change it for the better. You know, it's their opinion as opposed to fact. And that's a big job for us on this campus and globally for librarians to really teach people how to be critical about what they're reading and the source that they're getting it from. Mm. 
This is this is perhaps linked to to my next question. I think this is a good segue to my next question. Is what what would you really like our listeners to know about libraries and librarians? <laughs> we don't have long enough. Um, I'd like them to know that it is one of the most varied and interesting jobs that I've ever had. You know, like many people, I've you know this is my fourth career, and it's the most diverse. It's the most geographically involved. I have a sister who's a lawyer and a brother who's a doctor, and if they ever want to leave the province in which they practice, they have to recredential. Whereas as a librarian, I've worked in the States, I've worked in Canada, I've worked in Trinidad and Tobago, I've worked in Europe, and I've never had to recredential. So if any of your listeners are interested in traveling the world with a career that will help them do that, librarianship is it. I didn't I didn't know that either and I think that that might come as a surprise to to many people that you don't need to read credential. I'd never thought of that. Yeah, if you go to, you know, American Library Association accredited school for your degree, everybody will accept it. Or an equivalent. The British um, Library Association has a different kind of accreditation, but the ALA sees that as equivalent. And I've never had to sort of reset any kind of librarianship credentialing just because I was working in a different country. Hmm. And given that you spend so much time, you, you must spend so much time thinking about the strategy and the budgets and the structure and the HR issues related to libraries and books, do you still have any time to read on your own? Of course. You know, those long flights to Hong Kong, you got to do something. I can't watch movies for 14 hours. I like to read. I find it kind of expands my viewpoint, expands my horizons, makes me think about things differently. And I try to read a wide variety of things. What are you, are you reading anything right now that you could recommend to our listeners? <laughs> I tend to have a lot of books on the go at the same time, just because, you know, you can be in different moods and interested in different things. So at the moment, I'm reading things like Dreyer's English, which is a guide to clarity and style. Um, and maybe that goes back to the kind of uh, work we put you through when we were putting the world is just a book away together. Um, I enjoy that. I'm obviously reading the library book that Susan Orling wrote about the L.A. Public Library. I'm reading RuPaul's memoir. I think what RuPaul has done has been really impressive, and I'm interested to see how he made that all come about. Um, a friend of mine, Howard Rodman, um, just wrote a book called The Great Eastern. I'm reading that. And I'm also reading a memoir of Ruth Reichel, who's the past editor of Gourmet magazine. Um, mm. She wrote a book called Save Me the Plums. And it's sort of a memoir interspersed with recipes. And that I thought was an interesting structure for a memoir. So you, do that. Is that all? That's it? That's all you're reading? At the moment, you know, there's a couple of things. Uh, I used to buy books on Amazon, and then I discovered my public library. So I borrow a lot of things from my public library. Uh, but it's, I, I think you must have named about six or seven books that you're reading concurrently. Is that, is that your normal pattern? Yeah. Yeah, I usually have about six to ten books on the go. And I've got some physical books at home that I pick up and dip into. I've got some books on my phone, uh, which is convenient when I'm traveling. Um, I just like to, you know, I really believe this whole idea of lifelong learning. I think that as long as you're alive, you're learning. 
And the more I can read and the more I can meet people, the more I feel like I'm learning. Hmm. Well, so just something that came up when you were talking about these books. I didn't know that Ruth had published uh, uh, another book and through a very interesting set of circumstances. She has a house in upstate New York near the Berkshires where I'm from. I ended up having New Year's dinner at her house and she makes a mean uh, macaroni and cheese and apple pie. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And, and uh, that's a good reminder for me to try to reach out to her to uh, to have her on the show. Yeah, no, she was, she'd be great. She's written a number of books, but this one I think was one of my favorites. And I'm I'm reading a book. I'm curious if you've heard about it, and I'm not sure if I'll get the title 100% right. I think the title is The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu. <laughs> I've heard of it, but I have not read it. What do you think of it? I'm really fascinated because Timbuktu, I'm sure you know this, was a center of learning. And there are 300, almost 400,000 manuscripts that date back to the 12th century, the 11th century that were saved in people's storage rooms and people have gone through the process of putting them in climate controlled environments and digitizing them and they had to be saved from extremists and that's what this book is about. Yeah, I read a review of it and um, I thought good for you guys going out there and preserving history. Yeah, talk about dedicated librarians. Mm-hmm. People dedicated. A lot of librarians have that streak in them. You know, they really want to make sure that, you know, the future is really informed by the past, and hopefully, people don't just throw everything away because it's not current. You know, we do learn a lot from our past mistakes and our past activities. Mm, absolutely, Catherine. This has been really fascinating. And even though I know you personally, and you you're the publisher of my book, I found that I learned a lot today in our conversation. I'm. Curious if there's anything else, any final thoughts you'd like to leave our our listeners with? I would just encourage them to support literacy and reading in whatever way they can. I think it benefits people of any economic group, of any age, at any time, and it opens up worlds to you. I think it can help, you know, just put your own life in perspective when you read about other people. And I think that that can be a useful thing at any time of your life. So read, everybody. Thank you. And Catherine, thank you for all you do for USC Libraries, for your work on publishing my book, The World is Just a Book Away, and for your support of the charity and our work with children who who really need this access to books. Well, it's a pleasure. And thank you, James, for this opportunity and for everything you do for USC and for the children. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Catherine. You bet. Thanks, James. Okay. Bye-bye. 